This morning, as you can see on the screen, we're going to begin looking at the book of Ruth. If you want to look there in your church Bible, it's page 267. Now, some of you at least will be quite familiar with the book of Ruth. It's a short book, four chapters. And maybe the first thing that comes to mind when you think of this book is the human love story that's in the book. And that is a big part of the book. But this is a book about God's relationship with his people. This is a book about the God who rescues his people and gives his people a future, a destiny. And this morning we're going to look at Ruth chapter 1. And I'm going to begin by reading the whole of chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Machlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back. Each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dad and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. 
When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is God's word. Verse 1 tells us this historical story took place in the days when the judges ruled. So this is the time period that's covered by the book of Judges, somewhere in that period. And Mike has already begun to show us in the evenings that the time of the Judges was a time of social and religious chaos. It was chaos resulting from Israel's rebellion against God. The book of Judges tells us it was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And any time that happens, the result is going to be social and religious chaos. So the events of this little book take place in a pretty bleak time in history. And on top of that, the book begins in a time of famine. In the middle of verse 1, there was a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So let's just situate ourselves with a map. There's Jerusalem. And Bethlehem, in the southern part of Israel, known as Judah. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. And the town had earned that name because it was a big producer of wheat, barley, olives, almonds, and grapes. It was normally a fertile place. But now, there is no bread in the house of bread. And so this Israelite family make the journey to Moab, which, as you can see on the map, is outside of Israel. Why would they go there? Presumably, it was the closest place that had food. But it was a major step for an Israelite to move to Moab. The Moabites were long-standing enemies of Israel. The Moabites were descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. So they were actually related to the Israelites. But they had traditionally opposed Israel. And during this period of the judges, they have been oppressing Israel through their very fat king, Eglon. If you want to hear about him, come back tonight. Mike will be dealing with Judges chapter 3. But the point is, for us, it's a big step for this Israelite family to move to Moab. Things must have been pretty bad in Israel for them to decide they'd be better off in Moab. 
Verse 2 says the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. We don't know the meaning of the names Machlon or Kilion, but the name Elimelech means God is king. And Naomi means pleasant or pleasant one. Now today, the meaning of names isn't really a big deal. When parents name their children, some of them look into the meaning of names, but often they just pick a name because they like the sound of it, or it has some relation to them in their memories. But in the Bible, the meaning of names is often very significant, and that's certainly the case here. In the midst of the chaos of the days when the judges ruled, and in the midst of famine, we meet a couple with two hope-inspiring names. God is king, and his wife, pleasant one. With these names at the start, surely we can expect good, good things from this story. So we're going to give this sermon a positive title. God is king. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Well, that's not so positive. We've moved quickly from famine to death. It's presented in a very matter-of-fact way. We're not told why or how Elimelech died. But when we remember what the name Elimelech means, we have to wonder. What kind of king is this God? Has he lost control? Is he not able to deliver his people? But it's not a totally bleak picture. Naomi still has her two sons. And, verse 4, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Naomi has lost her husband, but she can look forward to grandchildren. She can live as part of a growing family. Verse 4 goes on. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Machlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. After 10 years, we might have expected news about some grandchildren. But what we get is news of more death. And Naomi is now in a very precarious position. There were no benefits checks or pensions in Moab or in Israel either. Those who were too old or too sick to work were provided for by their families. But now Naomi doesn't have a family. If God is king, what kind of king is he? Can't he look after his people? Verse 6, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So God has not forgotten his people. The famine in Israel is over. And it's made clear that the Lord is the one who has provided food. So after 10 years away, Naomi can go home. 
and she intends to go home alone. What happens next is a formal procedure. What I mean is, there were certain ways of doing things in this society. Naomi has decided to go back to Israel, and her Moabite daughters-in-law feel duty-bound to go back with her. And so Naomi formally releases them from their duty, their obligation. Verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dad and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Naomi says, I know that you're just sticking to protocol here by following me. So let me free you from your responsibility. Go back to your families. Look for new husbands. You don't have to stick with me. It's significant here that after all that has happened to her, Naomi still remembers and mentions the Lord. When we see the name Lord in capital letters in our Bibles, it's translating the name Yahweh. That's the personal name for Israel's God. Why is that worth noticing? Well, most people in the ancient world assumed there were lots of gods, and they were territorial gods. In other words, they each had a certain turf of their own, and they didn't have power outside of that turf. That was the common understanding of things. But apparently, Naomi thinks differently about the Lord. The main god of the Moabites was called Chemosh. But here is Naomi in Moab, Chemosh's turf, But she's asking the Lord, Yahweh, to bless these ladies. After all that has happened to her, Naomi still believes the God of Israel is king. And he's not just king in Israel, he's king in Moab too. We'll soon learn a bit more about Naomi's belief in God. But before that, we see more of this social protocol from the middle of verse 9. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Naomi believes that Ruth and Orpah are still just being polite. And out of politeness, they're not taking her first go back seriously. The weeping aloud is part of the custom too. So Naomi gets pretty blunt. Look, I have nothing to offer you. There might be bread in Bethlehem again, but there's no future for you there. You will gain nothing by sticking with me. Even if I got married today and pregnant tonight and had two sons, are you really going to wait around until they grow up and then marry them? Come on. There's nothing for you if you stick with me. Nothing, only a share in my bitterness. 
And then Naomi points finally to the source of her bitterness. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. In other words, he's the one who has dealt me these bitter blows. Naomi has never lost her belief that God is king. He's king in Israel. He's king in Moab too. We saw that earlier in her prayer for these two girls. She asked God to find them new husbands in Moab. National borders are no hindrance for Naomi's God. And that means he's king over the circumstances of her life. The bitter blows that she has suffered, those have not been outside of his control. Maybe it was sickness that killed her husband and sons. Or it might have been an accident of some kind. But Naomi has no doubt that behind the circumstances, ultimately, lay the hand of the Lord. And she's right. Now, we'll see later that her attitude to things might not be right. But she has got the facts right. God is king. Always. Even when bad things happen. Naomi has given an accurate description of what has happened to her. She has received bitter blows from the Lord. Naomi understands that she's not living in a random, chaotic universe. The good and bad things that happen are not random pieces of good or bad luck. Ultimately, the Lord's hand lies behind everything. The band Cademan's Call has a song that says, This day's been crazy, but everything's happened on schedule. From the rain and the cold to the drink that I spilled in my shirt. From the songwriter's perspective there, his day had been crazy. Nothing had gone the way he'd planned. But he knows that God is king. Everything that happens is ultimately under God's control. From God's perspective, everything happened on schedule that day. It wasn't a crazy day at all. And this is not just Naomi's perspective or Cademan's Call's perspective. That's the foundation of the whole Bible. God is sovereign, even over the bitter things that come our way. There are no accidents in the true sense of the word. There are no crazy days. Every day unfolds according to God's schedule, even the bad days. Over the course of a lifetime, every single one of us will find that God takes some things away from us. We'll find that the unfolding of his sovereign plan brings pain into our lives. Things will happen that we didn't want to happen. Things will happen that we don't like at all. But that's not the whole story. Because the Bible insists that not only is God king, he is also good. Even the pain in our lives is part of a bigger tapestry. And when that tapestry is finished, every thread of it will be seen to be in the right place. 
Think for a minute of Jesus on the cross. Viewed up close, that was nothing but pointless pain and loss. A great man, wrongly accused and unjustly executed. What a horrible, pointless tragedy. But viewed as the center of God's tapestry, the cross looks very different. Those hours of pain were buying salvation for all who believe. The book of Ruth is going to show us that what is true of the cross is true of the individual lives of God's people. I don't mean that our lives are buying salvation. I mean that even the pain and the loss in our lives have their place in the tapestry. Of course, here in chapter 1, we can't see what place Naomi's pain might have in the tapestry. Naomi can't see it either. But even as Naomi is in the dark about God's purposes, she is being given signs of God's love. In verses 14 to 18, we have a glimpse of faithful love in the midst of loss. Don't worry about the word in brackets, I'll come back to that. Naomi has just finished her second speech telling her daughters-in-law to go home. And at this point, one of them decides she can finally do that in an honorable way. Verse 14, at this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. There's no criticism at all of Orpah here. Orpah did the sensible, expected thing. She didn't run off and leave Naomi. Even after Naomi's first command to go home, Orpah hung on. No one could accuse Orpah of abandoning her mother-in-law. She did the sensible, expected thing. It's Ruth who does the extraordinary, unexpected thing. It's very clear that Naomi has nothing to offer her. Ruth has nothing to gain by sticking with this old Israelite lady. But verse 14 tells us she clung to her. That's a very strong word. It's used to describe marriage in Genesis chapter 2. A man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. It's the same word that's translated here as clung to. Ruth is not making a half-hearted commitment here. But Naomi makes one final effort in verse 15. Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Naomi would not get high marks as an evangelist. Go back to your own God, Ruth. But instead of doing that, Ruth produces this amazing speech of commitment to Naomi. 
And we shouldn't miss what a big commitment it is. She's going with a bitter old woman to live in a foreign country, a country where she will have few, if any, rights. And she will likely face prejudice because she's a Moabite. Her country is a hated enemy of Israel. What we're seeing from Ruth is pure, faithful love. It's hardcore, permanent commitment, even to death. And it's a rare thing in this world. Last week, Time magazine had an interview with a billionaire. And the interview happened to mention the five kids this man had with his first wife. Then it mentioned the recent breakup of his second marriage. And as a farewell, a very public farewell to his second wife, the billionaire tweeted this. It was an amazing four years. I will love you forever. You will make someone very happy one day. It's hard to see what meaning the word love has in that context. What does it really mean to say, I'm leaving you and I'll love you forever? The Bible presents us with a very, very different kind of love. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and there are several Hebrew words for love. One of them is chesed. It's the word in brackets on the screen. Now, don't make a habit of trying to teach you Hebrew words, but this is a word we need to know. There's no one English word we can use to translate chesed. It's talking about faithful, committed love, covenant love. When you're reading the Bible and you come across the phrase steadfast love or loyal love, those are translations of the one word chesed. It's the word that Naomi used back in verse 8. The NIV translation says, may the Lord show kindness to you. Kindness is really way too weak of a translation. Naomi was praying that God would show loyal love to Ruth and Orpah. Here, in verses 14 to 17, God is showing loyal love to Naomi through Ruth. Loyal love says, I'm all in. I'm here for the long haul. I'm committed to you. That's the commitment God has for his people. And it's the commitment God's people are to show to one another. The world around us is filled with insecure people. Men and women who have no experience of chesed. In many cases, they don't even know there is such a thing. I don't mean they don't know the Hebrew word for it. I mean, they've never experienced the reality of it. They don't know that there's a love that isn't based on their looks or the sex they're willing to give or the money they have or the things they achieve in life. Chesed does not mean I'll hang around so long as you still look youthful. It does not mean I'll stick with you so long as you're fit and healthy and good company. 
I'll stick around until a better offer comes along. No, Chesed says, I'm all in. I'm here for the long haul. I'm committed to you. Even as Christians, we can forget that we are loved this way. How much of our insecurity comes from forgetting that we are loved by God the Father Almighty? And his love does not ebb and flow according to our prospects in life or our exam results or the job we have or the car we're driving or the lines on our face. One of our most simple songs teaches us one of the Bible's most profound truths. I'm special, the song says, not because I'm talented or good-looking or clever or popular. No, I'm special because God has loved me. And he still does. And he always will. As God's people, we live our lives in the wonder of God's love. It's love that we don't deserve. Love that we can't earn. And it's love that will never leave us. There's nothing like it for calming our fears. Washing away our insecurity. We live in the wonder of God's love. And we need to show the world what God's love looks like. In our families, our marriages, in our church fellowship. Here, we find a non-Israelite teaching us what God's love looks like. Here in the midst of Naomi's bitterness and loss, God is showing her faithful love. Yes, we've seen for his own sovereign reasons, God has taken away a lot from Naomi. But he has not taken away his love. And he's showing his love through a very unlikely source. And through this unlikely source, God is going to give Naomi more than she ever had before. More than she ever dreamed she could have. By the end of all this, the woman of Bethlehem will crowd around Naomi and say, Your daughter-in-law loves you and is better to you than seven sons. At this point in time, though, Naomi can't see or even imagine any of that. God is showing her faithful love in the midst of loss, but all she can feel is her loss. And her only expectation for the future is more bitterness. So we read in verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Literally, she stopped speaking to her. The sense we get here is of these two women plodding along in awkward silence. Naomi is reconciled to the fact that Ruth isn't going back to Moab. But the older lady is lost in her bitter thoughts. In her pain, she can't see any good in her situation. Ruth is there beside her. But Naomi doesn't see Ruth as a sign of God's faithful love to her. Naomi has no inkling 
that one day this Moabite woman will be better to her than seven sons. And Naomi has no inkling either that from Ruth's descendants, God is going to bring Israel's greatest king. And ultimately, much later, God is going to bring the world's greatest king. Right now, Naomi is stewing in her own bitter juices. The Lord has dealt her some bitter blows. And the first chance Naomi gets, she's going to let people know all about it. Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? The opening two verses of this chapter mention Bethlehem twice. And here it's again mentioned twice. And the final verse of the chapter is going to mention it again. Now at this point in time, Bethlehem was a small, fairly insignificant place. But from the Bible's perspective, it's a very, very important place. In fact, it's so important, it's worth mentioning five times in one chapter, even though twice would have been easily enough. Later, the great King David will come from Bethlehem. And still later, a king even greater than David would be born in Bethlehem. But as we've noticed, Naomi can only see the present. And the present is bleak and bitter. Her friends are excited to welcome her back. Can this be Naomi? It's excitement. But in response, she comes close to biting their noses off. Verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. We noticed earlier that the name Naomi means pleasant. But now she wants to be called Mara, which means bitter. And in her bitterness, she treats Ruth as if she is nothing. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. But Naomi, what about Ruth? Naomi is right about God's sovereign control. But in her mind, it's a sovereignty without grace or compassion or mercy. Naomi only sees half the picture. She knows that God is king, but she doesn't yet know that he is the good king. She doesn't yet know he's the king who cares about his people. She doesn't know that even the bitter losses in life are part of a tapestry. And even the ugly threads in that tapestry are contributing to something beautiful. Naomi can't see that. But you and I are given a hint of it in the final words of this chapter. We're told that these two ladies arrive in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest was beginning. The book opened with a famine in Bethlehem. Now God has provided a harvest. 
And so you and I might wonder if he's going to provide a harvest in Naomi's life as well. At the end of chapter 1, a bitter woman returns home empty, but the harvest is beginning. Some of you are in the middle of bitter circumstances at the moment. You feel that God has emptied you. You might not say that, but you feel it. He has made your life very bitter in some way. And you can't see why. I can't see why either. But listen to this message from Ruth chapter 1. God is king. And there will be a harvest. I have no idea what that harvest will be or when it will be. But the bitterness that he has brought is not pointless. It's not spiteful. God will bring a harvest out of your bitterness. This morning we've seen Naomi being emptied by God's hand. By the end of this book, she will be full. God is going to bring a harvest in her life. And he's going to bring it through the most unlikely source. Through Ruth, this young Moabite widow who Naomi hardly even seems to notice. And today, you and I are living in the benefits of that harvest. The events of this little book are part of a long line of events that lead to the birth of Jesus Christ. God will bring a harvest out of your bitterness too. I don't know when, but he will. And in the meantime, he has not stopped loving you. Maybe you can't see it or feel it. But God's love is not the kind that says, I love you forever, I'm leaving you. God's love is faithful. He gave the best thing that he had to save you. And nothing in all of creation can separate you from his love. We're going to remind ourselves of his love now as we sing, Loved Before the Dawn of Time.